four young and fearless Americans, children of the space age, armed with cameras, microphones, and curiosity. Alan Yates, Faye Daniels, and their two cameramen and inseparable friends, Jack Anders and Martin Tomasi. Four youngsters who never came back. Are they still alive? And if so, where are they? These are the questions that the rescue team sponsored by New York University and the Pan American Broadcasting System hope to be able to answer. Chris Kowski here with Matt Owl. And on this episode of the first run, Matt and I, well, I'm going to tell you, Matt, renowned asshole Darren Aronofsky returns with uh, The Whale. Perhaps we can get past all of that and focus on Brandon Fraser and what's being called one of the best performances of the year. Then we begin our best of 2022 catch-up with Alejandro Naratu's Bardo, A False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, a story about identity, crisis, not identity crisis, and humanity that may be something entirely different. Autor is going to auteur. There's the brand new ultra cool revamp of the big release on physical media featuring the streaming and straight to DVD picks of the week. Matt and I are going to then close out the big show by sharing our five favorite acting comebacks. Matt, Nick Cage does not count. You got to be gone before you can make a comeback. So let's start everything off, though, with a clip from The Whale. She saved him. She wasn't trying to hurt him. She was trying to help him. Who are you talking about? He's going home. She did that. Charlie. She didn't do it to hurt him. She did it to send him home. Do you feel lightheaded, Charlie? Look at me. She's trying to help him. Who? Ellie. She was trying to help him. She just wanted to send him home. Do you ever get the feeling that People are incapable of not caring. People are amazing. And then there's Matt. Matt, why don't you tell the fine folks, what is the whale all about? So, Charlie is a morbidly obese uh, shut-in, makes his living by being an English teacher, and he has a cardiac event one day, and it turns out he, if he doesn't get anything done, he's going to die within probably a week's time. And uh, he refuses to go to the hospital. So he decides that he's going to make one last reach out to his estranged daughter to see if he can at least get to know her a little bit before the inevitable happens. Thank you, Matt. Clear, concise, and mostly interesting. Matt, the whale, <laughs> Darren Aronofsky returns. Now... I think a director whose work I enjoyed for most of my movie-going, viewing life. I don't know what phrase you want to use. And you find out that the guy is basically like a jerk, an a-hole, potentially a sex pest. I don't know. Not a big fan. But I thought we should still do the film because we're hearing lots of praise, lots of accolades for Brendan Fraser making supposedly a big comeback here and... I'm going to sidestep, though. I'm going to do a rope-a-dope on you. Because <laughs> The Whale is based on a play. Yeah. 
Matt does not care for play adaptations. True. <laughs> so does the whale escape its origins, its trappings of how it was originally designed and created? Mm-hmm. Uh, does Aronofsky succeed in creating kind of a, a larger cinematic experience? And really, basically, I think the really key question is, is Brandon Frazier's performance all that and a bag of chips as we've been mm-hmm. here? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think the use of the fact that Charlie is a shut-in, he can't leave his home, he can't, he has to have basically everything has to come to him, and he's the focus of this film. I think that's a good conceit to kind of hide the fact that this thing is like, was based on a play. I didn't know that going into it. I knew that obviously as I was leaving. Um, so that's not something like where it, it stands out to you, like in fences, right? Where you really feel stagey. This doesn't feel stagey to me, mm-hmm. uh, but to your other question. Yeah. I think this whole film its entire reputation kind of lives and dies on Fraser's performance. And I thought it was a very earnest and moving performance. You know, it certainly does some emotional shenanigans. It pulls at your heartstrings and it's, you know, kind of goes to your kind of lowest, uh, maybe stoops a little low to get those things done and maybe it doesn't earn it, but it still works. And I still think he is very successful in this movie. I can't say two of his co-stars are necessarily, but I think he's very successful. Okay, wow, we're going to have to spend some time on that. But uh, I will state that I f- felt there were moments where it felt like, wait a minute, I was wondering, is this based on a play? Because there were a couple scenes where it felt very kind of orchestrated to kind of, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Trying to meet the demands of being a stage play. And mm-hmm. then when the credits you know, the credits rolled and it saw that it was a play, I'm like, all right, well, that makes sense. But it only was a couple times where I felt that way. And I think they were on more of the wider shots. We get a larger, fuller view of the apartment. That would kind of, then it felt a little claustrophobic i guess at times and also want to say too that's because also the frame the framing size here that aronofsky shot this with right his aspect ratio so man i'm telling you matt i got covid issues with my brain i still can't pull certain things and it really freaks me out sometimes but he does the basically the uh and i can't remember what this what the what the the size is right now you'll have to tell me but the tv size not the four three nine thank you the four three but that's how he shoots this thing because he wants us to feel just as trapped as Charlie is. Also, too, by doing so, he's able to amplify, I guess, Charlie's size to mm-hmm. make him feel even bigger and more uh, untenable on the screen. And I have a few issues here with Aronofsky with this movie. It does feel exploitive at times. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, at, I think, in a film that I, I was at times repulsed by and also enamored with. I think that's because of Fraser's performance. Uh, it's it's because the repulsion also wasn't so much the viewing of Charlie and his body, right? I mean, I think Aronofsky goes in right away to make us upset and disturbed by having Charlie masturbating, basically is how we meet him, right? right? I mean, he's really trying to amp up the grossness, if you will. And that's the stuff that made me feel exploited. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least that, I should say that Charlie is being exploited for our viewing. And... I think it's very, it troubled me at times because Frazier will have these just incredible moments where he's just bearing his soul to us, right? And Aronofsky refuses to let us really linger and connect with these scenes because then he he cuts over to these just really just disgusting 
uh, unhealthy eating habit scenes where Charlie gorges himself. And it's to make us grossed out and repulsed as well. Now, I, I don't I don't think he's trying to make us hate Charlie at all. Yeah. He's just trying to show us kind of his, Charlie's reaction to these moods and these moments that he's having. But the way he shoots it, with the sound design as well that's used with it, really amplifies how disgusting he is. And he uh, also has scenes when he interacts with the occasional stranger or somebody who's not a main member of the cast. Yeah. That really kind of exemplifies that as well. And I think that's... I think where the film succeeds, it's despite it's in despite of Aronofsky and not because of what he's doing. It's despite of his actions. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a completely different take on all of that. I didn't think it was being exploitative at all. Like, I thought what they're showing you is a very... Maybe one of the best portraits of depression that I've ever seen. Right. And especially yeah. one who uses someone who uses food to comfort themselves. Like part of it is, I think there's a ticking clock in this thing. Right. So from mm. the very beat right. get go, you know, Charlie's on borrowed time and he's so miserable. Like he knows what he has to do. He could go to the hospital and he could, get help and possibly add years to his life. Right. But he won't do it. And initially he kind of, they kind of frame that as he's too ashamed to go outside, but it kind of ropes into another thing at the end that I don't know if I completely buy, but he gets that reaction of, you know, you see people react to his appearance, the, the, his students, the delivery people. And that's very true to life. I mean, that's all very, the kind of thing that happens and it's almost like his eating because he knows it's, it's literally putting him into an early grave. It's almost like his way of, you know, nobody cares about me. I'm super depressed. I've lost love of my life. I'm essentially, he's essentially hastening his own death. He's, he's killing himself. Right. And it's yep. not, it's not Aronofsky looking at it saying like, look how disgusting this guy is. It's more like he is so, in the depths of despair that he's like trying to kill himself in a different way. And I think it makes you, I think the you're supposed to empathize with him and almost be like Liz, like you just want to reach the screen and be like, what the hell are you doing? Like if you just stopped, you could know your daughter, but he won't. Yeah. I think he is so broken by the death of his, his partner that, uh, you're right. I, I, that's one of my notes. He's hastening his own his own death, his end. Mm -hmm. You're entirely right about that. He's lost. He's given up on life. So all he's trying to do is accumulate this benefit potentially for his daughter. And in these last moments, as you said, rekindle some type of relationship. I don't know. I just felt like there could have been more subtle ways to do that, right? I, I, that I think that Aronofsky just isn't interested in. And I want to spend a minute and talk about Hong Chao. Mm -hmm. who I think has had quite the year. You may not remember, folks, but if you watch The Menu, which actually the day we're recording this has premiered on HBO Max, mm -hmm. and I would tell you, watch it. Yeah. It is very good. But she sh she's in that. She's also in Showing Up, which is a new film from uh, Kelly Reichardt that's coming out in a month or so, which I'm very excited to watch as well. Mm -hmm. So I think she's fantastic in this, Matt, because she's probably just as heartbroken as Charlie, but she's so lost and desolate herself she's enabling charlie because she doesn't know what to do 
right? So she's nursing her own heartbreak by taking care of Charlie, but also basically assisting him in his taking of his own life. And I felt that she is at once protective of her, but she doesn't know how to handle her own grief as well. So this, what she does is she's helping her friend and then just what? I don't know, just not conscious of the act she's taking or what she's mm-hmm. doing or she's so lost she doesn't even know what to do herself. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I agree with you. I thought, um, you know, Hong's performance is fantastic. I thought she was, you know, just as good as Fraser, and she should be mentioned in the same breath. I don't really know people who are super depressed and they have a shared trauma, right? They kind of support each other. I think she finds yeah. meaning in the fact of, you know, she's caring for, you know, the person that loved the person that she lost, right? They have that shared thing. And so all she knows to do, she can't find comfort in her family, right? But yep. she can find a kindred spirit to an extent in, you know, Charlie. And. I guess she's trying to make him live his own life and he's going to let, she's going to let him, you know, do what he's going to do. But at the same time, she just, she can't leave him. So I I don't know. I I thought her performance was fantastic. I thought she was the the second highlight of the film. Okay. I was nervous. So you must be then referring to Sadie Sink and then what Ty Simpkins. Simpkins Yeah. So I didn't Sadie Sink is kind of a one note performance. I think a lot of people, from what I've read online, seem to like it. I think it's a little much at times. Um, it's really hard to empathize with her. Um, and then, of course, I'm not a, entirely sure what the whole entire point of Time Simpkins character is. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't think they were. I don't think they sunk the movie by any means. But, but I think compared to Frasier and Hong, that they are just like outclass and outshone at like every step of the way. And even when um, uh, Samantha Morton shows up for yeah. like the one like third act, you know, beat, I thought she was fantastic. I think those three are great. And I just don't think Sadie Sink and, and uh, Ty Simpkins can, I just don't think that they're up to the challenge yet. Well, I think it's interesting is that I, I agree that Sadie is she her performance is a little one note until the very end, mm-hmm. right? Then I think when she has that moment, she has that turn, that break. Then I yeah. think she, it 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 kind of just I think we'll talk about it a little bit with Bardo. I think it kind of changes her, puts her whole other performance her performance in a whole other light for me. Mm-hmm. That I think and then it becomes a little more successful for me. I agree with you though about Thomas's character, Ty Simpkins' character. I don't. I think what it is is so the whole thing is that Charlie facing this devastating loss, his non-relationship with his daughter, right? Um, this the one relationship he has with Liz, which is still in the in the end is this just torturous love thing where the two of them just are, are very good friends. Not love as in romantic love, but sure they they deeply care for each other. But they're also be basically they're as you said they're hastening his death. His I feel like it serves to illustrate to us how optimistic in some capacity Charlie is. You even heard it in the clip when we introduced this part of the show, right? Is that he believes that people want to do good and are good. And so we, I think he projects this act by Sadie Singh's character that I don't think is entirely true. Mm-hmm. But in the end, when he finally has his kind of 
what the conclusion of his arc, which I fucking listen, I had a big old <laughs> eye roll on that. But I think the rest of the film up to that point, specifically focus on Chow and Frazier, is beautiful. Yeah. I think they just played between the two of them, their two performances, as you said. I will, I, you know, I, I think it's stupid to say, but I want to say are both Oscar worthy performances. I think mm-hmm. they truly are. Mm-hmm. I think that I would give Frazier's performance in this and Chow would make this like an A movie, yeah. except they have so many issues with Aronofsky's choices and how he portrays Charlie in some scenes and other stuff that I feel like the movie itself is a C plus. But if it's, I would give Frazier an A and Chow an A hands down without a second thought. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so much. So this is again, because it's, you know, a stage play, it's, it's all hinges. This is essentially a character study, right? I mean, that's yeah. all this is. And I think for me, I think I had my issues with it. I think the ending is a bit much. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I related to it on a level as far as, you know, the kind of dynamic between the father daughter dynamic. I think it's enough to elevate it, vacillate it back and forth. But I think I'm going to land on an A minus on this film. Oh, wow. I think it's. I don't know that much about Aronofsky. I like to not know anything about any of my people that I like to watch. <laughs> Let's enjoy things. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I think there's enough here that it's really good. And even it's one of those things that even because of its flaws, that may make it more interesting, at least on mm-hmm. repeat viewings. I guess I, I just can't get past the fa- uh, I, what I feel is an entire lack of subtlety by Aronofsky and that I well, think he leans into the fact that that the one I think, well, the one allowable bigotry that we still have as a society is to mm-hmm. shun fat people. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's, Aronofsky's not known for his subtlety. He can be obtuse, but he's never subtle. Yeah. And, and you know what, too, in all honesty, I don't know if maybe there's there's a bit of projection in here with me, too. I've never, I've not always had the healthiest relationship with food. Mm-hmm. And I've had weight issues in my life, throughout my life as well. So, no, not Charlie size, <laughs> but... um you know, I've been heavier in my life than I am sure. now, for sure. sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. interesting. Yeah, all right. Wow. I'm glad we saw, again, Frasier just destroyed me on multiple times in this film. So so where did you land between your A performance and your C movie? Where Did you split the difference? Oh, I'm giving the movie a C+. Plus. Are you giving it a C+. Plus? The okay. film is a C+, plus, but okay. Frasier is an absolute A, without a doubt. It's like a training day thing for me. Again, Denzel is... You watch that movie for Denzel... Over and over again, right? That's why you visit it. And I, I'm, I'm going to tell you to watch it. Yeah. I think The Whale is worth the price of admission just to see Frasier and Chow. You will be riveted by those performances. Yeah. Just prepare yourself for, you know, for what I think is these, at times, exploitive views of him, of Charlie. They bothered me. They really did. And maybe, again, it's my projection. It's my knowledge of Aronofsky as well. It's a person, the stuff that I've read about him. So I, it's it's when I see those things, I have no ability to give him any benefit of the doubt because of the stuff that he's done in the past. Basically. Yeah. Well, that's a, we've often talked about that. It's a tough tightrope to, to walk. I guess we'll give him a pass when he's dead, if we're still alive, I guess. That's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the way it seems to work. If you're dead, then all right, we can enjoy what you got. Fair. Hey, I just did a, yeah, we opened with Cannibal Holocaust, which is a movie I have a lot of problems with. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
but Diodato died, and he did some good, some pretty good other horror stuff too. I'll never forgive him though for when they killed that turtle in that film. Yeah. I just, you can't. Well, I mean, again, we talk about we talk about especially your love of like Hitchcock, right? The man mm-hmm. was a monster, but he, you know, <sighs> his his stuff was. I turn that off in my head every time. Exactly, yeah, you have to. You have to. I swear to you, yeah, ugh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the whale is currently playing in theaters now. If you had a chance to see it, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Shoot us an email at feedback at the first run dot com. Twenty Matt, minutes. Twenty minutes, Chris, on, on the movie. whale. <laughs> hey, see, it's it's an interesting, uh, introspective little film, folks. You'll you'll get a lot out of it. It's it's, uh, it's something. So, all right, Matt. We talked about the revamp physical media picks, so right. we're going to jump into that now. I'm still working out the uh, the beats on this. I want to introduce some fun little things with it too, so that will be coming at some point, hopefully soon. But let's uh, let's just get into it, shall we? Humans are such easy prey. Let her go. Oh, I will. Beyond her wildest dreams. She will go into my mind, and I will go into hers. It's the greatest sensual pleasure there is. You never knew pleasure, or David, only pain. You are evolving into a being that has never existed before. I'm... Crawford Tillinghast. Let it happen, Robert. No. Let it out. No. Ooh, that's that sounds rough, Matt. Whatever's happening there. Yeah. What? What? What was that? So you? Oh, okay. So that is a clip from Stuart Gordon's excellent mid-80s horror film from Beyond featuring Jeffrey Combs, mm. where there is a basically a mad scientist, Edward Petroius, and he invents this machine called the Resonator. And if you're close to it, it expands your consciousness and you can see like alternate dimensions and stuff of things all around you, yeah. but it also will help make those things physical in our dimension as well. And you kind of like evolve into this weird kind of monster thing. And it's just a... I, it's, it's it's a great gore fest, mid-80s Stuart Gordon stuff. So if you like his work, which I do, um, from beyond, I've always loved. I only had a DVD of it for the longest time. Then Scream Factory put out a Blu-ray of it. And uh, that has long been out of print now, I think, at this point. So the good news is, though it's not out yet, I'm telling you now because it's a pre-order. You want to go over to Vinegar Syndrome website. They're putting out in 4K. With a brand new feature-length documentary in the making of the film, a bunch of old archival features as well. But From Beyond is going to be available in 4K from Vinegar Syndrome at some point this month. They're shipping it in January, is what they're saying. It's going to run you 37 bucks for the 4K. And I, I'm, I'm seriously considering this. I did just pull the trigger, though, on um, something else. Oh, City of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. Fulci's City of the Living Dead. Um, Cauldron Films, I think it is, is putting out a... Uh, through the end of the... Oh, no, it's over. It's January. Through the end of the month, Diabolic and Cauldron had a, a special pre-release price for... That was 50 bucks in 4K for some City of the Living Dead Fulci. But 37 for From Beyond, one of my favorite 80s horror films. So uh, you can run over to Vinegar Syndrome and pick that up. Matt, the plan is to do five. Okay. 
Five picks for this week. So coming out January 10th, physical media. Russell Crowe, direct wrote and stars in Poker Face, where a tech billionaire gathers his childhood friends to his Miami state for what turns into a high-stakes game of poker. Those friends, Matt, love have a love-hate relationship with the host, a master game planner slash player, and he's got concocted an elaborate scheme designed to bring certain justice to all of them. So uh, it's uh, written, directed, and starred Russell Crowe. You know, maybe it'll show up on uh, one of the streaming at some point. Might be worth checking out. The fourth film in my list, Matt, from Arrow, Sonny Chiba Greatness, The Executioner Collection, both Executioner films, including Part 2, which is one of my favorite titles of all time, Karate Inferno. You get high-definition presentations of both films, audio commentaries, a 30-minute featurette about Chiba with a whole bunch of interviews and more. I still have that Street Fighter set that Scream Factory put out a while ago. Watched the first one. Have not watched a single one since. <laughs> Jackie Chan movie Dragons Are Forever is being released in 4K and Blu-ray as well. Jackie plays a hotshot lawyer who's hired to defend the owner of a factory, which, unbeknownst to him, Matt, is the center of a clandestine narcotics syndicate. A brand new audio commentary is included in that as well as some new interviews too and some outtakes, behind the scenes stuff and more. Matt, a move we, movie we didn't do for the show yet that I want to uh, is called She Said, which is the uh, movie about the breaking of the Weinstein case. Mm-hmm. The New York Times focused on the two reporters, Megan Tuohy and Jody Cantor. There's a behind the scenes featurette on that as well. Hopefully we'll catch up with that at some point. And then number one, Matt, for me... It's our boy, Park Chan-wook's decision to leave is getting its physical media release from movie. You can also stream it on the movie site as well. Includes an introduction by the actors Park Hai-il and Tang Wei, an interview with Park Chan-wook, a making of featurette, and uh, some other features. And Matt, finally, uh, just getting released in 4K for the first time, Ouija, the first film, not the good sequel, mm. and then Bill Murray's Groundhog Day coming out in 4K. Your straight-to-DVD pick of the week, I'm going to go with Jack and Jill, the hills of hell. <laughs> While searching for her missing daughter, Joe discovers a brother and sister murdering team named Jack and Jill who are fetching more than buckets of water. The two are searching for something, and Joe may be the link to what they're after. Matt, what should we be streaming this week? Besides, of course, tracking down Jack and Jill, the hills of hell. Of course. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, the menu is available on HBO Max. I thought was a, I think we both enjoyed a, a good little, what you call mm-hmm. it, horror, horror film? thriller suspense uh, yeah i would definitely throw in the word thriller okay um and then also i don't know if i mentioned this i don't think i did uh but uh, one of the most fun movies of last year top gun maverick is finally available for streaming on paramount plus if you're a paramount plus subscriber Man, i think it's on are, epics too no it's there they are milking that i've been watching that 4k for what months now and it's mm-hmm. i think it's cheapest it's gotten is 20 dollars. yeah yeah yeah. Somebody gave it to me for Christmas, so. Oh, that's sweet. Hey, wait, did you get my Christmas gifts yet? Is it the shirt? And the sweater. No, I did not get a sweater. What? No. All right. Well, I got you the shirt. Yeah. <laughs> so, so <laughs> I didn't, it didn't, I, I, I got it and I was like, it didn't have any name or anything with it. I oh, was like, supposed to be a little, oh, okay. And I didn't get a sweater and there was no card or anything in it. So I was like. Like, who the hell could have sent me this? I was like going through the list. I'm like, finally, I was like, you know what? It's probably Chris. It's probably that's Scott. It. So, yes. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to a sweater. Uh, that's apparently I coming. think it's a hoodie, technically, as okay. well. All right. All right. I'll have we'll to check. That thing shipped it. a while ago. I'm a little concerned. I know. And I appreciate, Matt, the hot sauces from you. So I've been oh, using yeah. them, and they are delicious. So thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Spice up your life, man. 
That's it. Well, just for food, though, right? I shouldn't apply them anywhere else. <laughs> Uh, you know, it depends on how much of a, an exciting time you want, right? <laughs> Fair. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and keep moving, Matt. Let's spend a few minutes talking about, maybe not 20 minutes, but who knows where we're going. Right? Bardo's long. Why not spend just as much long talk about it? Bardo False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. Let's take a, it wouldn't be a looky-loo, a, lis- a listen-loo? Listen-loo. Listen, mm-hmm. Sure. Please remove your glasses, sir. What is the purpose of your trip? We live here. No, you don't live here. Fingerprints? Oh, yes. We do live here. I'm a journalist, and this is my home. This is not your home, sir. You have an O-1 visa. Please look at the camera. Yeah, I I have an O-1 visa because I work here and I pay taxes here, so I think I can call this place my home. Fingerprints? No, sir, you cannot call this place your home. Okay. We speak English here, sir. What is your name? Excuse me? Your name. Remove your arms, sir. I want to talk to your supervisor. That will not be necessary. Oh, that will not be necessary. I guess in the end, it really wasn't necessary. Really. No, it wasn't. So Alejandro Inaratu returns Matt directing, I think, some of the best films of the late aughts so far. I mean, if we look at some of the stuff he's... So Amores Peros, which is a film I have not seen, unfortunately. 21 Grams. Babel was the first movie of his I actually saw. Beautiful, which I think got Javier Bardem an Oscar nomination. And then Birdman, which basically ignited Michael Keaton's career. I should mm-hmm. reignited, I should say. Maybe that'll mm-hmm. pop up in a little bit. Who knows when we get to our top five. Then The Revenant, which finally got Leo his Oscar, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now he is back with Bardo, a false chronicle of a handful of truths. Matt, uh, this time, Aratu is focused on Silvero Garma. He is a Mexican journalist. He focuses on documentary films, right, to uh, show his message. And he is dealing with a massive success. He's won this prestigious award, the first Mexican writer to ever receive it, the Mexican journalist to ever receive it. And he's kind of having doubts about who he is, like some little imposter syndrome going on as well. But there's also these surrealistic qualities to the stuff, too. Like maybe he's dreaming at times, right? Maybe he's not. There's this also cute little trick, I think, when Aratu does this thing where he talks without moving his mouth. So we're thinking we're hearing like an inner monologue, but really Mm -hmm. he's just doing like a ventriloquist projection type of thing as well. Because then the people he's speaking to will say, you're, you're, you're not moving your mouth. It freaks me out. Start talking. Move your mouth when you talk, please, right? <laughs> There's a wonderful little moment where we get some isolated David Bowie vocals, right, with just uh, his Let's Dance, which I'm sure uh, was, a, was a high point for me, probably an eye roll for Matt, just because he probably thought about how much I was going to enjoy that. Mm-hmm. But Matt, you know I love me some auteurs. When they get rolling on stuff and they do these surrealistic kind of artsy projects these personal stories about what it means to be a journalist what it means to be what a man a mexican in a world you know and i want to talk about that scene that we clipped for the show as well because i think it really says a lot of what what about Naranto's trying to do here <clears throat> but i guess my question for you matt two hours and 30 minutes long is it time to start rating these auteurs in well, yes, potentially. Um, potentially. Like potentially. potentially. It depends works. on what the, the product is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
So first, I want to set the stage for everybody. So Bardo is a Buddhist concept where it's the transitional state between death and rebirth. And that's what Bardo is. So well, take- I, hold on. I did not know that. That is wild, wanky stuff. I did not mm-hmm. know. That, you know, that explains a lot, Matt. It does. It really does. And I wanted to. I wanted to put a little pin on that, as far as that. Uh, I think will feed into a lot of this. So, okay, I got a lot of feelings about this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so first, this has the long Latin American tradition of magical realism, right? Which basically mm-hmm. means it's a literary tradition, but it's also in a lot of film. Um, is where you take something in a setting that seems to be highly detailed and very realistic and you just introduce something strange that we as an audience would say cannot be believed but in some cases everybody in the movie doesn't react to it right it's just as right. the, it just continues as normal so that's called magical realism it's big in latin america and there's a lot of that in this it's like uh in Aratu sat down pulled out his hundred years of solitude sat down and read some Gabriel Garcia Marquez and was like, yes, this is what I want to make. Um, Chris, sometimes this is at times self-indulgent. Sometimes it's, it's, it's uh, pretentious. Um, It's way too long. I think this thing could have been edited down a lot. I think uh, at many of the times I'm sitting there watching this, it's really weird. It was, at times gorgeous and I was really enraptured with what he was doing and I was really on board with this and then it would shift to something else and it would just go on and on and on and I was just like get on with it like what's like let's move on from this scene or whatever I don't know I I struggled with this I respect Inarado for what he was trying to do I respect him as an artist but just because of that it doesn't mean necessarily you need to throw up all your ideas onto the screen just to see what sticks. Yeah. I mean, I love the melding of like dreams and imagination and how untethered to societal conventions artists can be and are. Mm -hmm. I'm a failed artist myself. Right. But I feel like the term self-indulgent isn't a strong enough word. Like I feel (laughs) like I need another larger word for this (laughs) though. I think you've provided a lot of interesting background for me that I was not aware of. So that was very eye opening for me. So thank you for that. Does the ending of the film undercut any of that then where we get an explanation Mm -hmm. for the magical realism? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is he's actually dealing with like internally dealing with a personal trauma. Right. That's what we're seeing. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it derails anything. Right. I mean, it it could Mm -hmm. still, cheapen it at all though or make it less well yes it I, frankly one of my notes here was you know i'm going back to like creative writing 101 when i was in college and one of the cardinal sins among the list of many was never end it with it was all a dream right because then you're gonna gonna feel everything was a cheat and mm-hmm. i think it's a lesson that he didn't learn and i think it does cheapen it a lot I would personally would have preferred, I don't know, maybe something like, I can't believe I'm going to say this, Aronofsky's The Fountain or something, or maybe Malick's Tree of Life, where it's like he's moving through time or something and he's seeing his own death or whatever. 
I would have been more on board with that as opposed to kind of what I think Inarata is trying to say is what it is. I liked too. I think that at times, as you said, there's some really gorgeous shots in this thing. There's one particular scene too that really stood out to me is the streetwalk shadow interplay at mm-hmm. one point, mm-hmm. and the sound design on that is fantastic because it slowly builds and the city becomes alive. More and more alive as he walks through it, right? Starts off very quiet as he's walking, and then he something happens around him, and something else happens, and everything kind of becomes alive. And it was really a, a, a wonderful, magical thing to watch happen. And there's a lot of great little moments on there. It really is. But I think it, I don't know. Like you say, I, I wonder if it, I feel it does cheapen things a bit because I feel like then the whole movie feels like a setup, like a setup mm-hmm. to something that doesn't ultimately pay off for me. Because, and it takes away, I think, from some of the other stuff that Naratsu's talking about in this movie. Because, again, the film is peppered with all these concepts of duality and identity. And the one scene in the film that's played almost entirely in English is the one we just played. Right. And that's the most focused and grounded in reality scene, I think, in the entire film. Mm-hmm. So, clearly, at that point, he's got something to say about you know racism and bigotry and stuff. Mm-hmm. And even perhaps even amongst people of the same culture, right? right? So that is where he brings out his hammer. And then the rest of the time, he's painting these broad brushstrokes of magic, as you said, and art, and magical realism. And it's the times it's really stunningly beautiful, but at other times, just like you said, it just goes on. As right. Casey Kasem said, it's ponderous, man. It's ponderous. <laughs> did, did Casey say that? There point. is an old like clip where he was recording some ads and you can probably find it out there. I just remember hearing it when I was a kid. Just hearing him say, it's ponderous, man. It's ponderous. I'll have to see if I can track it down and play it sometime. But yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of beautiful, interesting, fascinating stuff with this, with this film. There's also some frustrating work as well, Matt. I don't even know what to give this thing a grade. You know, what's really funny is when I stopped watching it and I hit that little stop button and went back to the menu, the movie went from a C-plus to a B-plus to me. When we had the final reveal, I'm like, oh, it all makes sense. And then, then, then a couple of days later, I thought about it more and more, and then I get no. It's it's worse now. Yeah, it was actually better before. And, but I'm I think I'm going to end up around the same. I'm going I'm leaning towards a B B minus. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, like the scene where he talks to his dad. Yeah. And he shrinks down to a kid's size, but it still has his head. <laughs> yes. Disturbing. But the fact that it runs for like 10 minutes. Yeah. Right. It's. Yeah. I'm going to go B minus. Yeah. Um, for me, it's 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 just too unfocused. I, I can't tell if I would have preferred this thing to be like a more of a personal family portrait. I think that's what I would have liked. Or if he's really going to lean into what does it mean to be in a Mexican American or a Mexican immigrant and, mm-hmm. you know, a uh, clash of, of cultures of, of, you know, first generation versus like second or third generation and talking to the ghost of Hernan Cortez on the bile, on the piles of, of bodies of the, the Aztecs and stuff. But then he's not, but then he's not. Yeah. I don't, mm. I feel like if he had just taken one of those ideas and focused, we would have a much better film. But at the, like you said, even just some of the simple quiet stuff is just absolutely gorgeous. That mm-hmm. scene where he's 
his daughter and him are in the infinity pool and he shoots it from behind and they're just kind of looking out at the horizon is like a, a gorgeous still, but it's, yeah. it's just, I don't know. I'm going to have to come down. I think on a, on a C, I, I think okay. there's just not enough here to really kind of pull me in, but it doesn't mean I don't want to see his next film. Oh no, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Now, what I, I'm curious to want to ask you one last thing about this. Cause this one really sat with me for a while. And I, I wasn't sure how I felt about it until the end of the Mateo arc. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on the Mateo stuff? Because I think the end of it is emotional, gut-wrenching, and beautiful. But all the other stuff before it involving Mateo, when he first shows up, mm-hmm. and then he pops up that one time as well. Right. Very unsettling. Yeah, right. Yeah, um... I don't know. I like, I, I, I kind of drifted, I, I kind of drifted out of the Mateo arc. It doesn't, it didn't have a lot of impact for me. Okay. It just didn't, it, it just didn't. I mean, I, I hate to admit it, Chris, but I'm sitting here watching this thing and I kind of would get, it's almost like you would get dulled to watching this. Like, it's almost like you're watching, like you're watching scenes go by through a window and it's like, Oh, that's really pretty. And you kind of snap to focus. And other times like with Mateo, I didn't, it just didn't register very well with me. Yeah. Mm. I think it's think? like a microcosm of the entire film. You think so? Where it's just weird, crazy stuff. Some, some, some of it unsettling. And then just an absolute moment of pure emotional truth and beauty. And that's kind of how this film worked for me. You know, do uh, you know the Venice and Telluride version was 20 minutes longer? No. Oh, well, that's, that's what was missing. They cut out too much. Yeah. I don't know, Matt. Bardo, <laughs> Falls Chronicle, The Handful of Truths. It's bold, it's daring, it's long. It is currently available to stream on Netflix. And I want to warn you, there is some weird sexually explicit stuff in this. All right? Prepare yourself. You're going to see some stuff. You're going to be WTF, right? You know, yeah. So it's not going to be a... L-O-L. No, it's going to be some weird, weird stuff. Just don't watch it with your mom or your dad. All right, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. I could, that scene in the bedroom, man, that was wild. Yeah, or your kids. Yeah. Really, watch by yourself. Yeah. (laughs) In a a hyperbolic chamber. Hyperbolic. What's the term? uh, Hyperbaric. Hyperbaric chamber. Hyper, I like a hyperbolic chamber where you it's do? really outsized <laughs> and big and crazy. It is. It's and, huge. It's the <laughs> biggest. It's the biggest and the best. <laughs> if, if you've seen Mars, use an email at feedback at thefirstrun.com. Really, I, it's, it, I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life, aren't I? With this damn COVID brain. It's going to be... You know what? You just got to lean into it. Yeah, you know? Good Lord. A hyperbolic chamber. All right. Let's close out the show and share our five favorite... Uh, uh, acting comebacks. This one isn't a movie, Matt. And I know he was notoriously difficult, but I absolutely loved his character on this show. So I thought, you know what? It's my show. What the hell? Eating fresh, are we? Have you found any dirt on Subway yet? No, nothing. I should probably hang out with him more. You know what I think? I think you're falling for him. I am not. Who do you think I am? I lived in New York. You never lived anywhere. You're a weapon designed for sex. You only think you lived in New York because I implanted your memories. Oh, here, stop it. Look what we're becoming. I'm sorry we pulled you into this dirty game. I want you to stop. Yeah, we're pulling you out right after your last assignment. This pen is a microphone. It's also 
A mini flask. Did you just drink ink? Just plant this on Subway, and you'll never have to see him again. Until then, keep him interested. And for God's sake, slap some life on those dead lips. <laughs> so there you go. That's Chevy Chase's Pierce Hawthorne in Community. Mm-hmm. One of my all-time favorite shows. A guy who's, you know, he what? He did the National Lampoon's films. Um, great stuff, right? Yeah, Fletch, sure. Yeah, sure. But you get a rewatch Confess Fletch with the missus, and she loved it. Really? Yeah, so uh, if you haven't seen Confess Fletch, check it out. It was on iTunes for five bucks, so I pulled the trigger and I bought it. Nice, nice. So uh, anyway, Chevy Chase, Community. Big comeback for me for him, though I guess he was miserable to work with and then uh, hasn't really done anything else since, right? He popped up in Law & Order a couple times, but that's about it. he really hasn't. So I guess I'll start everything off, Matt. I'll give you the ultimate number one. Okay. I'm going to go by number five. is a recent one. Mm -hmm. I was just so happy about it, I wanted to mention it. It's Kei Hu Kwan in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Mm-hmm. Short round himself after, I'm not sure, was he even acting for a while? I, I don't know. But he gets his big role uh, opposite Michelle Yeoh in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And he uh, nails it. He uh, has really nice, sweet, tender moments in the film. Some kick-butt, fun kung, kung fu karate as well. Uh, <laughs> some martial arts, I should say. Um that that fanny pack scene alone is uh, worth watching that movie. So, but he this, he does Matt though. Outside of the comedy and the thrills and that in that movie, how much fun it is. He there is a real depth behind the, his eyes and those moments when he's with uh, with her. And it I don't know. It just I absolutely loved him in the film. So I wanted to give him some praise. So Quan's my five. Was he Data in the Goonies as well? Yes. Yes. Okay. I believe so. Wait, let's make sure we're not being racist. No, I'm I'm not a nine percent sure I'm not being racist on this one. Okay. I'm pretty sure you aren't either. But yep, yeah, it was indeed data. Yes. Okay. Was. Fantastic. All right. So <clears throat> my number five then um is uh Mickey Rourke, but not in the wrestler. I think the wrestler is the kind of apex of kind of his late stage career. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go though with I think really the film that kind of reintroduced him to audiences is Robert Rodriguez's Sin City, which I just caught up with again for a feature that may be coming out on our website. We'll have to see, but he is, um, yeah, he is just this, he embodies that kind of hard boiled Palooka, uh, that Marv is in the Frank Miller Sin City comics. Like he, he is Marv in that. And it's, it's crazy, I think, and it led directly Absolutely. into Aronofsky's The Wrestler, which I think is his pinnacle or his peak, uh, maybe in his entire career. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a great pick, Matt. My number four is probably the easiest of all of them. It's a layup. It's probably the biggest turnaround mm-hmm. out of everybody on my list, and that's John Travolta in Pulp Fiction as Vince mm-hmm. Vega. I think yeah. it's it's the laziest of all the choices, I think. That's why I had it kind of near the end of my top five. But, man, I mean, Travolta went on to do a whole bunch of stuff. Some of it not so good. Some of it okay. Right. right. But I also don't know if he ever sniffed a role as good as his one in Pulp Fiction after that either. Yeah. I, I can't really think of anything. Yeah, so it's it's my number four as well. I When I, when you first mentioned this, con- this, I almost put it at number one because usually when we do these, whatever one I think of immediately – is my number one because that's the one I thought of without any kind of prompting or even having to pick my brain. But 
it's interesting. Travolta is the is such a crazy case to me because, you know, he did Saturday Night Fever. It launched his career, made a bunch of bad choices, was floundering, was an afterthought in Hollywood, does Pulp Fiction, launches him into, you know, face off and get shorty and all this kind of stuff. And then he does Battlefield Earth and he starts making a bunch of bad decisions again. He's basically right back where he was, you know, before he took Pulp Fiction. And I don't think he's got another Pulp Fiction in him. Yeah, no, I think, uh, yeah, unfortunately. Well, I don't know. We still haven't seen Gotti. I hear great things about Gotti. So maybe we'll have to check that out. My number three then, Matt, is the aforementioned Birdman with uh michael keaton one of my favorite childhood actors batman himself but what he does this time he does a little he does a little spin a little turn on the batman character as well about a guy who's what gonna be his daughter's putting on like a play version of it is that what it is i'm even blanking on it it's been so long yeah i think that's right i've seen it yeah but there's also this kind of magical realism this kind of hyper weird reality as well that uh happens with him where he kind of becomes a Birdman type thing again he's got because his what his character is like over his shoulder, kind of talking to him the whole yeah. time, you know, yeah. and it's got a really fun drum score as well, which I've always enjoyed. Right. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just love Keaton in that film. It's a lot of fun. And I still, to this day, am angry that Eddie Redmayne won the Academy Award that year instead of him. It was, I would think it was Keaton's to win. And it's just, it was so wrong that he uh, lost that. But yeah. yeah, Birdman's my three. Meta as hell too. Meta yeah. as hell. Little on the nose there, Mike. Um, okay, so my number three then. I, I'm and this, I'm waiting for Chris to yell at me for this this pick. So we'll have to see what happens. Okay. But it's Clint Eastwood is William Money in Unforgiven. So when that came out in 1992, Clint Eastwood's last Western was Pale Rider in 1985. And he had done one the last Dirty Harry movie in, I think, 82nd, 86, 87? I think, I think Deadpool's days. Yeah. And then after that, he has kind of a string of weak entries, right? And he... This, I think, when this comes out, it redef- it's like it redefines the Western. It's kind of like the capper to almost the Western genre as a whole directed by this guy and acted by this guy who basically laid the foundation for it i think it blew him into like a late a really late stage career that he's been writing ever since um maybe even maybe even less as an actor and more as a director but i think unforgiven i don't i think it really kind of revitalized eastwood's career i you know what i think you're right and i'm disappointed that i didn't even think of them you're right i i I watched unforgiven and i i hit like a little clint eastwood fever Mm -hmm. where i started buying a whole bunch of his dvds like i bought i bought the clint i bought the dirty harry movies i bought firefox i bought uh tightrope i bought uh pale rider heartbreak ridge deadpool's 88 by the way okay and also too white hunter black heart which came out two years before unforgiven Mm -hmm. which i think is really good but yeah that didn't exactly wasn't exactly a runaway success yeah pink cadillac yeah you're right man Ooh, bronco bill any which way you can this is a sequel to any which way you but loose which is not as good 
Then you're getting in the 70s, Gauntlet, Enforcer, Outlaw Josie Wales. Now, what do you think? I think, would you say Outlaw Josie Wales was the last really great movie he made before? Unforgiven? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. I think Pale... I I have a special af- af- you know, affection for Pale Rider, but I think, yeah. yeah, Josie Wales is probably his last great Western before Unforgiven. And then he does In the Line of Fire, which yeah. is uh, great. But then it goes, we're back to the other bad stuff then. I think Absolute Power is entertaining, but it's mm-hmm. not great. True Crime, not good. Space Cowboys, Blood Work. Then he's back with Million Dollar Baby. Then he's back on the horse with Million Dollar Baby, right? Mm-hmm. Changeling. He, we only dir- he, he, he directed that. that. Yeah. He, yeah, he just directed that. Gran Torino. Did he win an Academy <laughs> Award for Gran Torino? He was know. nominated, wasn't he? I think he was nominated. I don't think he won. Okay. Oh, no. It wasn't nominated for a single Oscar by the Academy. Oh, it wasn't? No. Huh. Shows that's what, what Wikipedia know. says, which is never wrong. <laughs> so that's good. My number two, then, Matt, is The Reconnaissance. Mm. Now, I know a Lincoln lawyer was kind of considered the start. Just kind of, I don't know, where he plays this attorney. I guess it's based on a bunch of novels. And there's a TV show on Netflix now. I guess there's a little like, reboot of it. Um, but he's a lot of fun in The Lincoln Lawyer. It's a it's a kind of traditional throwback kind of adult thriller. But for me, but it could have been a fluke, right? I mean, you never know. But then he does Killer Joe, mm. which I think is the big comeback film. Which you have not seen Killer Joe. Check that. Even though it's got Emil Hirsch, another just bad dude. But it is a really whacked out film where our McConaughey plays a, a hitman. Mm-hmm. And he accepts payment from this. I guess so what? Emil Hirsch's character runs into trouble with a, a, a drug lord. And so he says, well, I'm going to hire a guy to kill him and get me out of this stuff. So he hires Killer Joe, who's a, who I believe is a, a, law, a peace law officer, too, as a mm-hmm. law officer. He's a sheriff or whatever. But he kills people on the side. He's a hitman on the side. And <laughs> in lieu of cash payment, McConaughey decides to take Emil Hirsch's sister instead. And it is just a weird, crazy little film that I saw in the theaters that I absolutely fell in love with. And then from there, he does Mud, which is fantastic as well, mm-hmm. if you haven't seen Mud. And then he gets his Oscar with Dallas Buyers Club. Right. So, but uh, Killer Joe that is my McConaughey. McConaughey. I can't even say it now. McConaissance? Yeah, sure. <laughs> McConaughey's my number two. Man, I haven't seen Killer Joe <clears throat> since we did it for the show. I really need to watch that again. What was... With the K-Fried C is the only thing I can remember about that. Yeah. <laughs> what was the other film that we watched that it was the same year? It had like Casey Affleck or something. It was like this really dark Jim Thompson thing where he was like this like wife. Be- the killer inside me. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank- yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. I digress. Um, I saw okay. that real art ways too. I remember seeing that there. I was The yeah. killer inside me? I'm going to watch that again too. Um, all right. So my number two. I, this was surprised me, um, but it's such an iconic role. I had to put it on there. And again, Chris may yell at me for this, but um, apparently Marlon Brando was not getting any work at all before Don Corleone. Like, yeah, he had a bunch of bombs right before that. He, he yeah, did. Like he was three, almost four years on of the outs of Hollywood. He was almost unemployable. Difficult. Was not a bankable star. And then Francis Ford Coppola comes along and makes him Don Corleone, the godfather. And in a relatively few amount of scenes, man, that that he created an iconic character. Uh, you know, it's just a late career. Uh, when you think of him, I think you think of 
Don Corleone probably more than any other character that he's done. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's crazy. It's an honorable mention for me as well because I, I don't know. I felt like I, my number one had to be RDJ. Yeah, Robert Downey Jr., whose career was just like he was in, uninsurable mm-hmm. because of his drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And he was given a shot to do basically the singing detective, which is a movie I have not seen, I confess. Nice. But the movie for me was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang mm-hmm. with another stellar performance by Val Kilmer and that as well. And uh, Shane Black's film where he plays uh, an actor. Well, he's kind of maybe. <laughs> so the studio is trying to cast this movie and the actor they wanted being very difficult so then they have this fake kind of um uh tryouts and robert dungeon kind of stumbles into it because they're going to use him as leverage against the real actor but he then goes on basically ride-alongs with val kilmer's uh cop to get ready for the role and it is just a blast it's one of shane black's like if you watch the other guys and mm-hmm. you love that film like i do watch kiss kiss bang bang it is just as good, and it's a lot of fun. So um, that was, for me, the beginning of RDJ. And then from there, he was able to roll in, obviously, and do Iron Man, and mm-hmm. uh, the rest is history, as I said. Yeah. Yeah, my number one was RDJ, although I forego Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I agree with Chris. It is probably his kind of first, you know, kind of return, but it has to be Iron Man. I mean, that blew the doors off of everything that he could. And he became, like he became like Hollywood's favorite uncle. Like everybody forgot about all the stuff that he did, you know, and all the difficult times that he had. And he's just like America's, you know, cool, cool cousin, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it had to be our DJ. That's Robert Downey Jr. Folks, in case you don't know. That. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not in the know, like us. <laughs> so do you have any honorable mentions, man? Yeah. Um, so the only one that you didn't mention was say again, Bruce Willis, but not Die Hard. I'm going to say Sixth Sense was, it kind of showed that he not only could be this badass action star, but it kind of showed that he had some acting chops. And I think Sixth Sense kicks off a whole nother slate of uh, Bruce Willis uh, goodness until, you know, until it, it kind of tailed off at the end of his career there. Well, I think the issue with Bruno is he was going to be on my list, but his whole career is like that. Yeah. Where he'll he'll do a fantastic film, and then he'll do a bunch of dodgy stuff, and then he'll do a fantastic film. And then, right, for me, that would have initially was going to be Pulp Fiction. Mm. That was like the initial revitalization for Bruce Willis, though I do love me some Last Boy Scout. Uh, and then, of course, what about 12 Monkeys, Right. 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 That's another great one. That's that's his whole career is like that, where he just does a bad film and then he does some good. He's, he's very good in Death Becomes Her. Then we have Loaded Weapon One replays and then Striking Distance. Oh, good God, Striking Distance is bad. Then Pulp Fiction, then North, then Color of Night. Oh, nobody, that's so bad. Color of Night's so bad. Then Nobody's Fool, which is not really his film, but it's a, it's a good Paul Newman. Then Die Hard with a Vengeance. All right, that's the, probably the second best Die Hard movie. Mm hmm. 12 Monkeys, Last Man Standing, again, a film I enjoy. Then we got The Fifth Element, The Jackal, Mercury Rising. Oh, good God. <laughs> and then nothing until 1999 when you had this. Well, not nothing, but not great stuff. And I'm throwing Armageddon in there as not great stuff. The but Sixth it, Sense, right? It was successful. 99, then he does Unbreakable after that, which is great. And then from there, it's kind of over. Hmm. I think... 
Unbreakable is the last really great film that he was involved in. I mean, he was in Sin City, right? But yeah. uh, it's a, a, a more minor role. And the 16 Blocks is not bad. But the the straight-to-DVD stuff really starts to kick in in a couple of years after that. I I do enjoy Planet Terror, but again, it's not a, like a Bruce Willis movie. And I do like Cop Out. I'm one of the few people who actually sing the praises of Cop Out. So. Barely. Oh, Looper. I'm forgetting about Looper, Matt. See? I, you're right. They're, they're, Looper might be the last best role. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I know you're a Jojo Retaliation fan. But, <laughs> um, yeah, no. Looper, you're right, is his last really good performance, his old Joe. I'm just going to sit here for the next 20 minutes and read Bruce Willis movies. Glass. Okay. Uh, that movie still upsets me. <laughs> Purposely. Should well. Messing with me in that one jerk <laughs> well while you look over the career of bruce willis i will tell the folks what's coming up next week well so, no i gotta tell you my honorable mentions real fast oh you did i'm sorry this Stepping is your on week. your toes you're editing this week so i'm gonna i i don't i don't really care um so we have eddie murphy and dolomite is my name <laughs> though i know it was showgirls not no showgirls it was uh was it showgirls yeah no, it wasn't showgirls no it's not showgirls i know what you're talking about but I dream girls think. dream girls yes that's it Showgirls, showgirls, showgirls is yeah the other yeah. very very other thing. Alec Baldwin, mm-hmm. when he shifts to a character actor with Departed and The Cooler and Avi- the Aviator, mm-hmm. they took him to make your work. Jason Bateman gets the role in Arrested Development and goes on to do Juno. Yep, but uh, that he revitalized his career there. Neil Patrick Harris with Harold and Kumar. And you talked about Brando, Betty White, Golden Girls, and Lake Placid. I think Lake Placid really is what kind of repopped her into the uh, culture there. Joaquin Phoenix and Gladiator. Mm, mm-hmm. Rob Lowe with Parks and Rec, another TV show. And then my girl Drew Barrymore showing up in Scream and then The Wedding Singer. Yeah. Revitalized her career there. And then maybe maybe he started in a few big movies. And then he's been doing character work, small roles ever since. But there are rumors maybe, maybe Aaron Taylor Johnson, maybe, maybe, maybe <laughs> James Bond, maybe, maybe. All right, Matt. Well, so... Email feedback at the first run.com. What's your uh, favorite actor comeback? Matt, what should we be streaming this week? Uh, ah, what am I talking that? about? What's up next week? <laughs> you know, I, I think you think, I think it's cute that you think I'm going to edit any of this out anyway. <laughs> so, um, uh, next week, um, a Chris, the, I think one of the, I am biggest shocked mo- that you're not excited to see this. It looks creepy as I like, it looks creepy in a bad way. I like I, the weird dancing she's doing. I don't like it. So we're going to go see Megan just for you guys. And then we're going to catch up with After Sun um, instead of White Noise, which came out. But we're going to do that the week after. I'm putting my foot down. All right, fine. And I we still want to do, I still want to do She Said. And there's some other, there's some one other movie too. Is it Return to Soul? I want to check out as well. Mm-hmm. The calendar is slowly being updated, Matt. I created a 2023 page. Mm-hmm. So I saw that. that's there good for you oh. thank you i appreciate okay. it thank you thank you <laughs> we'll have to start throwing some stuff in there either way the first run.com check it out you can find all the episodes there and our report card which i still haven't updated i haven't updated yet mm-hmm. and then uh, head over to a uh, youtube instagram twitter facebook do a search for the first run scroll 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 eventually you'll find us head over to apple Podcasts and give us a review it'll help other people find this show happy new year We hope you had a great holiday season. We love you very much, and we will see you all soon. Take care of yourselves. Finger guns.
Five long years he wore this watch up his ass. Then he died of dysentery. He gave me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass two years. <laughs>